Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Hello and welcome to the Manchester is Red podcast. My name is Stephen Railston. We're hosting this episode on a Monday morning. Um, some really sad news, obviously, across the weekend. Uh, the passing of Sir Bobby Charlton. Uh, that emerged on Saturday, uh, aged 86. An absolute legend of the club, a stalwart, an English great. Um, and the club paid their respects on Saturday in Sheffield United by wearing black armbands and laying a wreath before the game. And my colleagues Tyrell Marshall and Samuel Lucas were at Bravo Lane. Um, Samuel, terribly sad news, a remarkable man, a remarkable life. He was a genuine great, wasn't he? He was. He was a legend who stopped the other greats in their strides. It, it always stands out that when they, they were last won the Champions League, I mean, he he led the team up as, as the club dignitary, which was uh, particularly poignant 50 years after the Munich Air disaster, 40 years after they first won the European Cup. And when he, when he receives this, I think it was like a shield or something off Michel Platini, who was the UEFA president at the time, then the players follow up and Ronaldo's one of the first and Ronaldo notices Bobby Charlton and embraces him and shares a moment with him. And everyone knows the ego quite justifiably that he has Ronaldo, but even he was stopped in his tracks by, by Sir Bobby Charlton that moment. And I, I went down to Old Trafford yesterday morning. I was, I was asked on to do some TV, but it was quite... You know, heartwarming to see a lot of children uh, accompanying their parents, uh, gr- you know, grandparents with grandchildren as well, and then educating them about this this great man whose whose name will be remembered for for many more generations. Because everywhere you look at Old Trafford, he's had a he's had a huge role in whatever it is you clap your eyes on, whether it's the size of the stadium, because he was absolutely um, instrumental in. Manchester United becoming the the worldwide phenomenon that they are. He's got a stand named after him. He's one of I think five or six greats in the club's history who's who's immortalised with a statue. The Munich clock as well, of course, is very poignant. Uh, the plaque to the Munich air disaster, the Munich tunnel. 
even Sir Alex Ferguson, uh, Sir Bob, Bobby Charlton was a huge supporter of his in those early years, those difficult years. And um, I think it's in the MEN's archive, these, these great pictures of them coming back on the train after the FA Cup final in 1990. And of course, that was when it, that was what kickstarted United's era of dominance. And, and Ferguson is, is clearly jubilant on the train, but the other one who looks particularly reveling in the celebrations is, is Bobby Charlton. And he, he was quite a restrained man. When, when, the, when the stand was named in his honour, he looked almost bashful uh, about it. But th there were certain moments and that, that FA Cup win was one of them, but the other ones were when United won the European Cup because he knew how important that was to United and United's identity and how special it was after Busby blazing a trail, taking the team into Europe in, in, in 1956 and the, the tragedy and, and Charlton being pulled from the wreckage in, in, in the slushy snow of Munich by, by Harry Gregg and then recovering to win it 10 years later. And that's, that is what's particularly remarkable. He, he somehow, let's face it, he'd have suffered from PTSD before everybody knew what PTSD was after um, Munich. And I think there was an element of survivor's guilt that he felt, which just um, you know, accentuates the, the, the sadness about uh, that. But then to have condensed, what was it, an FA Cup, two league titles, Ballon d'Or, European Cup, World Cup within a decade, is, is just breathtaking. It's absolutely extraordinary. Um, Henry Winter wrote, I think, might have been last year or a couple of years ago, a piece on why he was England's greatest sports person. And I think for that alone, you can't argue with it. And it's going to be a very emotional time for United. I mean, they've got three home games coming up. One, The first one's in, in the Champions League, European Nights. That's what Charlton was synonymous with. Then there's the Derby as well. And it's, it's quite eerie that two members of two of, of the two Manchester clubs, Holy Trinities, Bobby Charlton and Francis Lee have passed away quite close together. And then with, with Newcastle coming to town, I mean, he, he grew up a Newcastle fan and he was he was related, a uh, distant relative of, of Jackie Milburn's. And I think those in Manchester, they are up in the northeast. They're probably as proud as of Bobby Charlton as United fans are of him. The words icon and legend are just thrown around these days, Tyrell. Bobby Charlton, so Bobby Charlton generally was, wasn't he? Um, his achievements, like I say, the word remarkable is probably fair to describe them. Yeah, 100%. I mean, I think Ten Hag said before the game he was a giant, and I think that's a, a pretty apt description. You know, I, I saw someone on Twitter say, if every, if every club could only have one legend, then United would be Sir Bobby Charlton. You know, he's, he is undoubtedly, I think, the most important, the most significant person in the club's, in the club's history. He's, he's a link to to the past, to the darkest hours and, and to, to the present, really. I mean, he was a director for, for 39 years. He was still a regular at games before, um, before his diagnosis with dementia in 2020. He was still a regular in games. Uh, and clearly, just a huge, huge figure around the club, a support to, to players and staff, even long after his own playing days had, had ended. I, you know, I spoke to Diego Dallo in the mix zone after the game at the weekend and you know, it was quite good that United put someone up who, who had met him because probably half of that squad probably hadn't met him really. The ones who signed after 2020 would have had nothing to do with him really. They'd, they'd know the, the mythology and the stories and the legend. But you know, Dallow spoke about how even when he signed, he signed in June 2018. And you know, when he first signed, he said Charlton would be there after you know, every home game at least and in the dressing room, win or lose, talking to the players. And 
you know, he was clearly, he was, he was still present around United at that time, long after his own playing career had ended. And, you know, undoubtedly a, a giant, a legend, every, every word you can use really, he was, you know, he was the most significant person in, in the history of that football club, I think. And it is, it is an emotional time. It was always going to be an emotional time on, on Saturday when, when it broke in the, in the afternoon. Um, you know, a, a difficult time really when it breaks at short notice to, to do it justice at an away game. Um, but I think you know both sets of fans and, and both clubs got it right, and I'm sure, like Samuel says, on, on Tuesday night certainly, I think it will be. It'll be very emotional on, on Tuesday night against FC Copenhagen in, in what's United's first home game after the news. Obviously, flowers and scarves has been laid at the Holy Trinity. Samuel, as you said, you went down to Old Trafford yesterday. Supporters have been invited to come pay their respects. Could you paint a scene of what that was like when you visited yesterday? What was the atmosphere like around the ground? Yeah, it was. I mean, I can't remember the last time I went there, if I've ever been there actually on a on a Sunday off, but uh, I, I was there at about midday and fortunately it was, it was it was quite a nice day yesterday, so it wasn't as if the weather was, was a deterrent, but it was still quiet at that point. Um, I did a lap of the stadium because I had my little boy with me and he was asleep, so I think it's, if you'll know in parenting that if you want to keep a kid asleep, it's best to keep them in motion. Uh, but I, I did a lap of the stadium and th th there wasn't a queue at that point for the book of condolence, but it looked like there was later on, um, looking at the Sky News footage. But uh, there, was, there was one lady who came by and uh, she had a wreath. I think most people had floral tributes, it was a bunch of flowers, but she had a wreath and uh, Pete Stevenson, who I was speaking to from Sky Sports News, he, he, he asked if he could just speak to her quickly and she had no problem. And he said, were you up all night making that? And she said, yes, I was. And she was clearly a lady who had 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 the privilege of watching Charlton and a lot of the um, regalia that was being worn by by certain supporters they were you know it was it was of that era it was retro shirts it was um, things to do with with the Munich air disaster and he, he clearly meant an awful lot to these people and th these are the people that you want to hear from really I mean you know at, at the risk of you know, turning people away from reading our work I, I didn't have none of us were able to watch him and the closest we got to him was was kind of like sitting um you know I don't know if, if a couple of dozen feet away from him when he was in the director's box at Old Trafford and occasionally if you're waiting in in, in a mix zone he would walk walk by because the the dressing room tended to be quite near but some of my colleagues had the privilege of interviewing him and you you want to read what 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 Brian Glanville or Hunter Davis, these great writers who not only watched him but and watched him a hell of a lot, but but knew him quite well. What they had to say about him, sadly, the people from that generation, there aren't many of them left now. And I, I think that's the sad one of the sad aspects about Charlton's death is that, you know, growing up, these these football gods of a certain era, there aren't many of them left. Uh, Pele, Bess, Cruyff, Maradona, Eusebio. Um, that's that is quite a you know I, I know the mortality maths everyone's aware of it but it, it's still there is a bit of a shock element that comes to it um, on on Saturday I'd I'd got wind at probably midday that um, someone had suggested to me that he'd, he'd passed away and um, United had previously stressed there was there was a rumor floating about and they said it was just rumor so hope when these things happen you always hope it is just rumor. 
But when we were in the car going to Sheffield, uh, it flashed up on my screen um, a message in our WhatsApp group from someone at United, and we both knew because of the identity of the staff member who was sending the message that he was about to be the bearer of bad news. So uh, it's, it's, it'll be interesting to see how United um, you know, pay their respects because when George Best died, and I think in terms of players who've played for United, a lot would argue that, that Best was the, the greater footballer because he was just his talent was was, was genius and, and Bobby Charlton was a genius as well. You could argue Best was the greater footballer and Charlton was a greater player. And when Best died in in 2005, I think there was more of a tragic element to it because he was so young and the alcoholism and that that final picture of him in hospital. And there were there must have been at least three games where there was some kind of remembrance or commemoration and you would imagine that because United have got this run of home games and also the the opponents as well it does kind of lend itself to to have these very dignified tributes and we've seen before with United and City that they, they've they've come together when it was the Munich air disasters uh, 50th anniversary in in 2008 and as I said that that was very very dignified there was a lot of um there was some there was some concern that the city fans would would ruin it, but that wasn't the case on the day whatsoever. And as a, yeah, these these very um, yeah, it was it was a, it was a great idea. I think it was a fan on a forum um, who I think it was a red issue forum at the time who suggested that they wear a retro kit, and, and United actually took that on board. And obviously, Bobby Tarleton was was there that day, and I suppose that's another uh, element of it in terms of the. The, the the Munich air disaster. Um, I'm not too. I, I think it's it's easy to fixate on the '66 team because that's the the great great triumph in uh, in, in English football. But from that from what happened in 1958 in Munich, I'm not too sure anyone who's on that plane now um, is, is is living. I'm, I'm trying to wrap my brains. But Harry Gregg died a few years ago, and yeah, it's um, it's sad. But he. After being a whisker away from death, he he had an incredibly fulfilling life. And, and listening to some of the archive stuff, people in Ashington were telling him or talking about Bobby Charlton being destined for playing for England from the age of about seven or eight. Uh, it was Jack, Jack, and this was Jack who was saying it as well. He, he had to work a bit harder, but Bobby Charlton was the one who um, that they all knew from a particularly precocious age. He was destined for greatness and he, he really was a great. He's a figure who transcended the sport. And you said, Samuel, yesterday that your parents would go on holiday. Um, they were, his name was just universally recognised. Everyone would know Sir Bobby Charlton in his name if you spoke to people. Um, in terms of the game itself then, Ty, obviously Sheffield United on Saturday evening. Scott McTominay said before the game that when he had to do it for Sir Bobby, he scored the opening goal. Diego Dallas' goal was an excellent effort on 25 yards, stunning strike. It was a fitting tribute to Sir Bobby in that regard, wasn't it? To, to the scorers to, to score like that. Yeah, the, the identity of the goal scorers were, were apt, certainly an academy graduate who's, who's been at the club for, you know, I mean, Scott McTominay's 26, has been associated with Man United for 21 years of, of those 26. Um, so that was undoubtedly uh, fitting. And the same with Dallow, like I say, a player who Charlton had met and you know, looking at them once a right back, you wouldn't say there's, there's much in that image, but the goal was certainly reminiscent of of one Charlton would score. It didn't have kind of the marauding run that we so often see of, of Charlton when you 
when you watch the YouTube highlights of his goal, so many of those those accelerations from midfield and long distance strikes, but the quality of it was similar. And you know, you you wouldn't say it was a performance that was fitting of it in terms of style, but that you know the substance of it was as, as good a player as Charlton was. You know, you, you read about it, there's no doubt he was a fighter and a scrapper as well, and was incredibly determined and and, and as Samuel has talked about to show grit and you know United did at least do that on on Saturday it was a you know it was a very hard working and, and determined performance they they had to ride their luck a little bit in the first half and you know it was a it, it wasn't and Dallow touched on it afterwards they knew what it was going to be like and you know, he was saying he's never played there before but knew what the atmosphere was going to be like and Dallow called it a very English game and you know when it gets like that on a Saturday night a ground like that the you know, there's, you're going to have to really dig in and, and probably take a few take a few blows to to get the victory, and that's what they did. We'll just leave it there for part one, then we'll be back in a bit for part two. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to sixty percent on hotels. So whether it's cousin Kevin's kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin, or Becky's bachelorette bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Introducing Royal Caribbean's newest ship, Icon of the Seas, the ultimate family vacation. The ultimate six slides, eight neighborhoods, zero compromise vacation. The ultimate never done that, can't wait to do it vacation. The ultimate chillin' by a different pool every day of the week vacation. This is the Icon of Vacations. Icon of the Seas, arriving in 2024. Book today. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry Bahamas. This episode is brought to you by Hyperice, the leader in advanced warm-up and recovery technology. They have tons of innovative products, like Venom-heated wearables to help soothe sore back muscles, Normatec compression boots to speed up recovery and increase circulation, and Hypervolt massage guns to improve mobility. Loved by athletes like Naomi Osaka and Erling Holland. Try them yourself. Get 10% off your order with the code MOVE at hyperice.com. Welcome back to part two of the Manchester is Red podcast. We're going to look at the performance in a bit more detail than Samuel. Um, Tyrone said it was a scrappy performance. And look, it was a really important three points. Uh, back-to-back league wins after the international break. Obviously, Brentford and Sheffield United now. They needed to use that momentum for three points. But it was unconvincing, wasn't it? And you look at the wins this season. Um, Wolves, Nottingham Forest, all by Burnley, one goal, Brentford, Sheffield United, all by one goal. And all of those teams are going to be at the bottom of the table, aren't they? And surely that's a bit alarming. None of those wins have been convincing. I, th- I think maybe on Saturday that was the most uh, encouraging in a way. In that, in the second half, it felt like a goal was coming. It never, I never got the sense that a winning goal was going to be elusive. Even when Rashford pulled a shot just wide and. Amrabat hit the the woodwork, and when when those things happen, you can wonder if is it is it not going to be United's night? But it, it always felt like it was inevitable they were going to get a winning goal. Um, I think Sheffield United's legs went very very quickly in the second half. McBurney coming off, they they really missed. I mean, Harry Maguire got man of the match. I think that was just because some stats flashed up, and we we didn't have they they didn't flash up on on our monitor. 
And it's almost as if Alan Smith, who's a co-commentator, because he's former England national, it seems like a lot of England nationals, past and present, they've no time for criticism of, of Harry Maguire. And I'm not saying he played badly, but I, I was, in terms of the ratings, it was impossible to pick out someone who was the absolute standout. There wasn't an eight out of 10 performance. There was some, I mean, Dallo was not having a good game, but he, he was elevated seven out of 10 just because of the, the, the winning goal. Although I still think Fodringham could have kept that out. A, a better goalkeeper would have saved that. He wasn't too convincing for the first goal either. He got wrong footed by McTominay's shot. We all assumed it deflected, but it hadn't. But I suppose it's encouraging for United that they had that control and the goal was coming. And so it's been it's felt a while since United played that way in a game. And there was some there was an inevitability about them winning it as well. But there were too many aspects of the performance which were in keeping with the form this season. And they've got a long, long way to go if that Brentford game is to still be a turning point. They've got, I think they've got to win both their games this week, which is a tall order. It's, there's a lot of pressure on them in, in Europe. And of course, it's pretty much the best team in the world who are turning up at Old Trafford on Sunday. And in terms of the issues with, with that performance, again, conceding a goal within six minutes, which has happened six times now this season, they, they can't eradicate that. Um, I thought they were far too meek uh, with with Jules. The the use of the ball was sloppy and aimless. Sloppy being kind, I think. Yeah, Hoyland, uh, I felt sorry for him at times. I, I I think if we did have if if the sky stats were appearing, I was I was waiting for them to show how many touches he'd had in the first half hour because it must have been comfortably in single figures and low single figures because he was just not getting any service and there was no link-up play. They, they got a little bit better in the last 10 minutes of the first half. But as a friend messaged during that first 45 minutes, he said, which, which is the promoted team here? Um, and yeah, some of the selections, again, from Ten Hag, OK, McTominay got the goal. He had quite an eventful first half in that he got the goal and he gave away a penalty. Other than that, not a lot to write home about. Anthony... I've never had Anthony, and I'm still not having Anthony. Um, it's pretty, it's pretty extraordinary when you think that he started five Premier League games this season, and Garnacho has still not started a league game since Tottenham away in in August. And and Garnacho was a positive. He came on, did well. Ericsson came on, and did well. I thought the substitutions really did have a good um, impact against they did against Brentford. But I think another troubling aspect of it I think it was in the 14th minute when Anana went down and when we were driving back we were even wondering was he actually injured was was he was he just doing it for attack because Ten Hag literally beckoned and some of the players thought it was just like the attackers it was just the midfielders no he wanted literally all 10 outfield players over and to tell them something very very clearly and Solskjaer said last month oh they're, they're, it was a lot easier coaching them when it was behind closed doors and some of those players are still there. A lot of those players are not still are not there as well. But it's not surprising United seem to have this issue. And watching Ten Hag in the first half, Anthony clearly was not listening to him. He was trying to get him further forward because if he's in midfield getting the ball, he's useless. I mean, he's not particularly useful anyway. But he kills attacks because he's one-paced, he's one-dimensional. He's not going to get away from his marker. He's just going to run down the line and the, the ball's going to go out for throwing or he's going to get tackled. 
and Ten Hag is even telling Dallo, look, move a bit higher up so he's a bit further up there. And it just didn't get through to Anthony whatsoever. And this is a player who worked with Ten Hag for two seasons at Ajax. He's had a season with him at United. And the message is still not getting through. And the message wasn't getting through to others to the point that he was having to call literally every outfield player over. Not The game wasn't even a quarter of an hour old at that point. So there, there are still fundamental issues with United. And there are certain players whose form this season... I mean, Fernandez got... Because he's the captain and because he gives his all, he, he had his name chanted at full time. But his form this season has been desperate. Really, really bad. Rashford was a little bit better, but he's still out of form. Hoyland, what you see is what you get. I don't think any of us are surprised that he's still not got a Premier League goal this season. As I said with Anthony, um, I'm, I'm just not having him. And already with Mason Mount, we've talked about what a mountain like mountain to climb, pun intended, there. it is already for him. It's understandably because of the, the news with Sir Poppy Charleston, the, the team news wasn't as, as major, but he's already been dropped. He's been omitted from the England squad and he's been dropped already. That's, that's what happens when you go to Man United, to a lot of players it feels like, and it always feels as though he's, that, that curse of the number seven has, has afflicted him, but he couldn't have any complaints. I, I, I think we discussed on Friday. I, I wouldn't have started Anthony just because I don't rate him, really. I, and that was my rationale for starting Mount. But Mount couldn't have any complaints for not starting that game because he was appalling against Brentford as well. And I, I suppose it's, it's got to be a worry for Ten Hag that, again, if you're looking at the standout performers in a game like that, you're looking at, I, I thought Johnny Evans did quite well again and, and Maguire got man of the match and again, you're talking about Claude Puel's first choice partnership from from five years ago and even that was, was weird, Varane not starting, um, we were told by a staff member at United, uh, which was clearly, uh, this was very PR, I think, like if he had two more days rested and starts against Brentford, well he's had nearly three weeks rest now and he didn't even start at the weekend. So what's going on there? And even after the game, it was it was weird. There were five five questions five questions into the post-match press conference where they've just won a game, and then it was right. We'll end it there. Uh, fantastic, you know, you've just won a game. There were uh, there were more questions after they got thrashed seven 0 by Liverpool at Anfield. So. Um, Although there's been an international break and normally they offer a chance for a reset, there are still an awful lot of elements on and off the pitch which are pretty worrying if you're a United fan or if you're a journalist covering United. There's lots of players in that team who are underperforming, that's obvious, but when I'm watching United at the moment, they don't look like a well-coached team. I'm, I'm trying to see what are the patterns of play, what are they trying to do? And we discussed how the midfield were fair on the preview podcast. Amrabat started with Tomine Fernandez. They were absolutely anonymous in that first half. Obviously, they did improve in the second half and they had more control in the last 25, 30 minutes. But it brutal tie in that first half. They couldn't keep the ball. They didn't know what to do with it. The defence was getting it. They were lumping it up. It wasn't sticking. And Sheffield United looked like the better team. And Manchester United can't be level with Sheffield United, who have just came up from the championship. I'm scratching my head at the moment. I can't see what he's trying to do. No, I know. And the, the, the strange thing is, the last season, they, looked, they did look a well-coached team. But last season, they were reliant on... They were strong defensively. They were well-organised. And they relied on some Rashford magic to often to win games. You know, he scored 30 goals last season. He was... You know, him and Fernandez were, were, were key to 
breaking defences down and United, especially at Old Trafford, would, would keep a clean sheet. And I've been saying since pre-season, it is very obvious that Ten Hag has tried to make this team more attacking and more in the mould of his Ajax this year. They're playing a much higher line. They're trying to get more men forward. They're trying to dominate games to the extent Ajax did, but they're not good enough to do it. The Ajax can dominate out of easy games. I mean, probably a bad example at the moment, given what's happening to them. It feels like that build-up play is very rushed, so they're trying to transition. You said he wants it to be yeah. a brilliant transition team. And they're getting that ball, and it seems like they're moving it too quickly. Well, take a move and settle it, retain yeah. possession and move up the pitch. Fernandez treated the ball like it was going to explode on Saturday. He would get it and he just, does that a lot just launch well. it. Yeah, and the, long, the quality of the long-distance passing, apart from Harry Maguire. I mean, Maguire was the best passer in the team on Saturday. Um, it's long passing especially. There was a few that were pretty accurate. Fernandez's were all over the place. Um, and yeah, they, they do just look a poor team. And touched on Anthony there. You know, the, the reason he was good in Holland was because he would the first it's time he would have contact with the ball would be in the final third, in the attacking third. And we've seen that. You look at all his goals last season and they're either he gets the ball in the inside right channel, 20, 25 yards from goal, cuts in, curls in a great finish, or he gets it running into the area on a counter-attack. In this United team, he gets it on halfway. And as Samuel said, he hasn't got the pace. He's not a winger who's going to beat a man, which... It doesn't have to be problematic. A lot of wingers these days aren't necessarily going to beat a man, but they get the ball in, in dangerous areas. If Rashford gets the ball on halfway, you know he can carry it forward. Look at where he got the ball for his goal for England in midweek. It was, you know, it was good work from Jude Bellingham. But in amidst all the praise to Bellingham, it was kind of forgotten that Rashford did get the ball 30, 35 yards from goal and finished 18 yards out, maybe, maybe less than that. Um, Anthony just can't can't do that. He can't he can't carry the ball. He's not a dribbler. He's not a ball carrier. So he needs to get on the ball in the final third. But United can't get there. And I, you know I think Ten Hag has clearly tried to make this team more aggressive, more pressing this year. But it, it's taken them backwards. They've lost the fundamentals of being strong defensively and, and well organised. Um, and it's it, it is just not not working at the moment. It doesn't. You know, it's, it, it, it can be hard to distinguish between cause and effect. Like, are Rashford and Casemiro as two, probably the two most obvious examples? Maybe Fernandes as well, but say Rashford and Casemiro. I mean, I, I think it's pretty obvious that they were certainly in the top three for Player of the Year last year, I would say. I, I, I think the official vote had Casemiro down in fourth, maybe, but I think we would all put them top three, probably top two. I think they were probably the two most important players for United's success last year. One got 30 goals. One was a world-class transformative player in a position United haven't had strength in for years. And this year, their standards are way, way below that. But are United struggling because they've fallen off a cliff? Or are they struggling because United have fallen off a cliff? It's, you know, it can be hard to distinguish between... I mean, even effect. with those caveats, though, they should be performing better than scraping these wins against these lowly oppositions, these poor sides. I don't think anyone expects them to, though. That's the problem. I don't think any of us expected United to go there and thump Sheffield United. It played out as we expected. I think all of us thought they would win, but not win convincingly. And no, but that's not good, enough. It's not a shock. No, it's not no, good, no. Enough, is it? That's the thing. No, no, it's where it they are, isn't it? In the table. No. I mean, you look at the teams that played three of the top eight from last season, Tottenham, Arsenal and Brighton. They've lost all three games. Manchester City next, so that could be potentially four defeats from four games against last season's top eight. And the struggle against those sides, it's not looking good for the forecast for the rest of the season For as far as Champions League goes. The 10-game mark is always it's a cliche, but it's, it's a good gauge. 
we're one game out now. It's, it's really not looking good. I still think, even though they won that day and it was a comeback win, the Forest game was a big problem because that was the obvious opportunity for a, a statement win. After a defeat at Tottenham, you're coming up against a team who had won one away game last season. They should have been winning that 3-0, 4-0. What happens? They're 2-0 down after the first four minutes. And I suppose that day, it, it never felt like they were they were going to lose that game because there was so much time left to salvage it and they did and they, they did a good job of it but it was a missed opportunity and since then there have been issues with, with with every game whether they've won whether they've um, lost them in, in in the Premier League the only breeze obviously has been in the League Cup game against Palace when Palace just it seemed like lulled United into a full sense of security so that they could beat them on Saturday which is is what happened the the weekend win it, it just felt it felt like a slightly better version of the Burnley win and that United had more opportunities they were more creative they were more dominant on the ball at Burnley Burnley had sixty percent possession and it, it it was as I said it was encouraging that they they were patient with their play they sensed that there would be more opportunities they weren't um, they weren't getting concerned or um, rush, rushing their play at all and and I think bringing Ericsson Garnacho on into that environment helped an awful lot. It also helped an awful lot that Sheffield United's striker had caused quite a bit of hassle in the first half, went off in the second half. And that's what I mean, like in terms of the man match award, without wanting to fixate on it too much, it was given someone who for half, probably a third of that game, his, his, his day job was pretty simple because he didn't have anyone to, to really defend against to, to give him any hassle. I didn't think Maguire had a particularly good first half. There weren't many in the United show who had a, a good first half. And this is, un unless they get two wins this week, I think, or, or there's a, a good performance and they avoid defeat in the derby, there's a very real risk that they're going to go back to square one again. Um, the 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 weekend game, it's 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 a step in the right direction results-wise because they won. It's back-to-back -back wins in the Premier League, but you you can't pull the wall over people's eyes. That that performance, there were aspects of it that were that would have been disconcerting. And look, I think a lot of United fans want to give Ten Hag a lot of want to cut him a big wedge of sorry a thick wedge of thick wedge of slack. It got there eventually. Because the first season was so good, and, and it was, and nobody's saying that he's a big problem or, or the problem at all. But this is his team now, and he's not blameless in. No, no, he isn't, and it's still early days for some players. But I think, I think those of us in here, we had reservations about certain signings, and I mean Amrabat, he was. You know, he was popular on social media. It doesn't mean you're going to be good enough for Man United. What I've seen of him so far, he's not been good enough for Man United. And Casemiro, I think going into the Sheffield United game, his his absence wasn't a blow. But certainly the way they performed against Sheffield United, if provided Casemiro is fit for the derby, which Ten Hag says he will be, it is you would probably still put him back in there. And do you put him in with Amrabat or do you accommodate the midfielder that he spent £60 million on in the summer who's, who's already been dropped. There are a couple of dilemmas already for Ten Hag that are directly on him because they are his players that he's signing. And even if they, even if they beat Copenhagen in, in a very comprehensive and, and, and you know, 
crowd-pleasing way, a lot of people will dismiss it as it's only Copenhagen. You, you've got to be beating Copenhagen at home. So the real acid test this week, as vital as the Tuesday night game is, uh, will, will obviously come on Sunday. Tyrone, you know I'm a glass-half-full kind of guy. So I'm going to give you a positive. Andrew Nona. Look, I'm not saying he was fantastic. Um, I don't think he made any saves that he probably shouldn't have, but he was some good, good shot-stopping efforts. Got there eventually myself there, uh, tripping up my words. But no, I thought it was a competent overall performance. And he's had a shaky first few weeks at the club, to say the least, a few howlers. So it was really important to have an assured display. He went the right way for McBurney's penalty. It was outstanding. It went in the back there, Eric. But he needed that kind of performance, didn't he? It was a step in the right direction. It was, um, it, it was a solid performance. I mean, some of his saves were, were fairly unconventional. Um, you know, there was one in the first half, I think, where he got, he almost got a too strong a hand to it and, and knocked it back inside his six-yard box. And I mean, there was no, there was, there wasn't really a Sheffield United player on hand to, 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 to capitalise on that. And maybe, maybe he knew that, and that's why he did it. But it's always a risk, kind of knocking it back central. There was the one, I think, second half where it, I don't think we actually got a replay, but he seemed to go the wrong way initially, and then. It, we weren't sure whether the ball had been deflected or whether it just was it was a huge swerve on it. I mean, maybe they showed a replay on on Sky, and you know, maybe it was a, a good save. But watching it live, it was like Ooh, that was, that seemed a bit unconventional. Cause it was one of those shots that ends up in the middle of the goal, and he's taken a step to the right. It certainly looked live, like there must have been some swerve on it or or something like that. But yeah, it was a you know a, a competent performance. I think I think there was elements again where his his, his distribution was a bit off for me. Um, I think it looks fairly obvious he's lost a bit of confidence. Um, you know, he, he's not. He's also not playing with the defence he expected, I guess, with distribution. I mean, I think, I think Evans and Maguire are both pretty good on the ball. Actually, I think it's an underrated element of, of, of probably both of their play. Certainly, Evans. Um, but it, it was very different to the Brentford game. You know, this this time Anana could bring the ball out 20, 30 yards from goal and be stood alongside his centre half. But there was a couple of times he. He did that and then went long and just overhit it or or got the pass wrong and gifted possession back. So I didn't I didn't think his distribution was brilliant again. But yeah, it was you know it, it was a probably a seven out of ten. It was a comfortable, competent performance from him. I guess he didn't have loads to do in the last half an hour. Then that was when United turned the screw and the the, the spell in the game and they did actually look reasonably good. Um, but yeah, I think you know like like you say, I mean. Just having a game where he avoids an error at the moment is is probably beneficial for him. Were there any other positives from the performance? You guys, they won. They won. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> yeah, yeah. A very very good goal that won the game. As I said, the the impact of the the subs, Ericsson and, and Garnacho. Provided some impetus, didn't he, Garnacho yeah, off the bench? It, it was a pity for him that he he cocked up his his opportunity. I think if he'd scored that, he'd have he'd probably got an eight from me because he, he, he. Also, the good thing about him is that even though he's still quite young, his use of the ball is improving. Like there were times when I was talking about patient play, and it's very easy for some of that age to be impetuous and to overdo it or to, to, to make an error. I didn't really see him do much of that. The only error, the glaring error that he made was when he was played through, and that might have been offside anyway. Um, I mean, I don't know if it's a positive or a negative, but it's it's quite interesting how the supporters are reacting to Anthony Marshall these days. There were a lot of disgruntled fans when he came on for Hoyland because they, they appreciate Hoyland's effort and they want him to do well. I could underst- I don't think it's particularly constructive in a way in that I can see what Ten Hag is doing there and, and Hoyland's got an injury and let's face it, he's not scoring in the Premier League either and he, 
he had three good chances at the weekend. It was another one of those games, a bit like the the Palace one, where the ch- he's 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 there for the chances, but he's not taken he's not taken them again. But a lot of United fans just don't have any time for for Anthony Martial, and frankly, he didn't have any time for them at the end of the game because he was the only one left on the pitch who went straight down the tunnel. We we counted it at the end. The other ten players had gone over to to the supporters. He's been in every match this squad, hasn't he? I think I'm right in saying that. Because we were discussing the injuries yeah. before the international break. Maybe not Wolves. Or maybe he was. He was, you know, I think he was, which is... So is the, I don't think that's crazy, isn't it, really? Yeah. You think about it. But again, the fact that he's only starts in the League Cup, it, it, it says it all, really. Well, uh, what you said on the preview podcast is out of contract, isn't it? At the end of the season, there's obviously the option to extend his deal, but... They should just let him go. Yeah. They should let him go and, and get a different forward in next, next summer. Uh, I think he's got 18 goals in the last... In, in the last three and, and including this one three and a bit seasons for United and that's a, a number nine I mean it's his best best season in front of goal a lot of those goals came behind closed doors games so in terms of is he a proper number nine I mean he's, he's a number nine in, in number only uh, it's it's in everyone's interest for for him to leave next year definitely we'll leave it there for part two we'll be back for part three With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Whether it's the legendary lionesses, grassroots or expert analysis of the women's leagues, women's football news has it all covered. A brand new monthly magazine packed with news, interviews and expert opinion. Don't miss women's football news. Pick up a copy today from participating retailers. Women's football is here to stay. And so are we. Welcome back to part three of the Manchester is Red podcast. Now, before we look ahead to Copenhagen, very briefly to end the podcast, just a quick mention to the Reach PLC's football news magazine that's coming out on the 25th of this month. So if that's your kettle of fish, head across to the website, check that out uh, with some exclusive interviews, etc. some good content in that. Uh, Tyrone, back to Manchester United. Anyways, Copenhagen on Tuesday night in the Champions League, tomorrow night as we're recording. Uh, first time in the club's history, they lost two opening Champions League group games, uh, Bayern Munich and Galatasaray, which means this game against Copenhagen is really a must-win. Yeah, I think they've got to win both. They've got to win this, this double-header. Obviously, it's home against Copenhagen, then away at the parking stage. I mean, even if they win both of those games and Galatasaray lose twice to Bayern, they'd only be two points ahead of Galatasaray going to Istanbul and I think that's a scenario Galatasaray would probably have taken at the start of the group stage and um, I mean a, a lot could change before that game but at the moment you'd have absolutely no faith in United even avoiding defeating away at Galatasaray to be honest I mean 
you know, they, they struggled with the atmosphere at Bromel Lane. I don't think they're going to go particularly well in Istanbul at the moment. Um, so, yeah, I, I think anything but two wins and essentially it's, it's over. It's done and dusted. Um, so, so huge, huge pressure going into it, really. It's, it, it's typically, you know, they get back in the Champions League and then within two months of the season starting, you're already thinking, well, they're going to be in the Europa League in the new year and they're not going to qualify for the Champions League this year. You know, I've, I've said a few times previously on this podcast that it is, it's almost like they're guests in this competition rolling back the years at, at times. They can't, they can't qualify for it automatically year after year at the moment and when they're getting it, they're not really making an impact. You know, the PSG game aside, you wouldn't say they've made a significant impact in the Champions League for a long, long time. So they, it's a huge, you know, there's no doubt it's a huge game for them. They've got to find a way to win. They really should be beating Copenhagen, especially at home. But, you know, they've they've started OK in the group stage, really. I mean, they, they were soon up in Istanbul with four minutes to go and drew 2-2. Um, they took the lead against Bayern Munich at home, only lost 2-1. Winning goal there came after 83 minutes, I think. So they've pushed two teams who have beaten United pretty close. Uh, I, I went to Copenhagen last year with City and that, that was nil-nil. City had a man sent off after half an hour, so a bit of a different game, but... It's, you know, it's very loud there. It's a really good atmosphere and they look a pretty competent team. So I don't think it'll be a walk in the park for United, but certainly on Tuesday night, they have got no excuses other than winning. I mean, if they fail to win and we're saying after three games, they're basically out. I, I think that'd be absolutely disaster. It is a disaster. That would be a disaster. Any changes for the game? I know we kind of talked about Ganacho having a good impact off the bench, but it seems quite unrealistic to see him starting over Rashford. I mean, you'd probably drop Anthony, but you're going to play Mount on the right. There's a few dilemmas going on. What would you do going into the game? Varane, I think. Probably Varane yeah, for Evans. obvious one, isn't it? Yeah, imagine, yeah, I think Varane and Maguire. With Martinez out, Varane and Maguire would be the first choice defence at the moment going forward. Um, I think I'd probably bring Mount back in. Ericsson did quite well from the bench on, on Saturday. But he's, Ericsson's had an impact from the bench a few times, actually, this season, I think. So I'd, I'd keep him on the bench. I think, you know, McTominay deserved... I probably deserve to keep his place after what he did against Brentford. Does he deserve to keep it for Copenhagen? I, I don't. I don't think so. We, we were talking on the way down on Saturday, and um, you know how I said on the podcast when Samuel was away, and he was saying that he agreed that he, McTominay's a type of player Ferguson would always have found space in the squad for. But you can also imagine that even after what he did against Brentford, Fergie wouldn't have started him at, at Sheffield United necessarily. Um, so I, I, I think. You know, I, I think that time has gone now. He's, he's a very valuable squad player. There's certainly games you'd be looking at three, four weeks in advance where you'd be like, you're in, you're starting that one, you're in for that one. Newcastle, I think you'd, you'd have him in the team for sure. Um, but I, I would bring Mount back in. So I think there are two changes. I, I can't see him not playing Anthony. He, play, he plays him every time, doesn't he? He's almost got to play him, given the money spent on him. Um, so I don't, I don't think there's any chance of Ten Hag ever dropping Anthony, to be honest. Um, I wouldn't drop Rashford either. I think he, he did all right on, on Saturday. Um, I think he was better than he has been. So, yeah, maybe maybe those two changes, maybe that'll be it. Um, Reguilon's a bit of a strange one. We should get an update on him today, shouldn't Saturday, we? Yeah. yeah, and obviously with everything that was going on on Saturday, it was kind of a, you know, it was well down the list of, of issues and, and things to ask. But he, he, you know, he played against Barnsley in the behind-closed-doors game in midweek, um, in midweek previously at the start of the international break. He trained, Tenal confirmed on Friday he'd been training and then suddenly he wasn't in the matchday squad. So don't know what's happened there. I mean, if he's fit, I'd, I'd have him in the team for sure. But obviously we'll, we'll wait and see what, what the update is with that. Finally, there's an interesting subplot because 
Rasmus Hoyland's brothers. He could be up both play for Copenhagen. Uh, it's doubtful that both, that all three of them are going to be at the pitch at the same time. But it's interesting nonetheless, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It, you know, it, it, it's a, a slim possibility. Um, two eighteen-year-old uh, twins, twenty-three months younger than than Rasmus. So, I, having one child, I pity his mum and dad. That must have been a hell of an effort. Although they have been awarded with three professional footballers, so I'm sure they're, not a bad return. they're going to make the most of it now. Um, so yeah, Oscar is. Um, like I said, they're both 18. Oscar's in the squad most days now. I think I don't know if he did start at the weekend, but someone I spoke to him in Denmark said he might have started that league game at the weekend. He has started for them. Uh, he's been on the bench in both Champions League games. I think he came, he's come on in one, maybe both. So he's kind of on the fringes of the first team and I think will be on the bench at the very least. Emil is more likely to play in the youth league. He has played this season. I think he made his debut on the opening day of the season when him and Oscar played, he was on the bench in some of the Champions League qualifiers. So, you know, it's, it's not beyond the realms of possibility if there was a few injuries that, you know, they'd, they'd both be in the squad, either here or in Copenhagen. And we were talking about it and I, 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 I've done a piece this morning on them speaking to their coach at their, their first club and some, some quite a nice background on the family dynamics and stuff. And I can't, I can't recall a scenario where three brothers have played in the same Champions League game ever. So, you know, that would be very interesting if it happens. Some, some good genes in the Highland family. There are some good genes, aren't there? Well, I think his, his dad was a footballer in Denmark, not at this level, but I think he had a okay career. The I was just on about their wardrobe choices, actually. I wasn't on about <laughs> that as well. If you want. Some cracking genes. Yeah. Uh, we'll leave it there then uh, for part three, Tyrone. Thanks for your time. No problem. Thank you, and thanks for listening as usual. Have a good week and take care.